Ordinary Voices is sponsored by RCL Worship Resources. RCL Worship Resources is creating dynamic, inclusive, progressive, grace-centered resource material designed to transform your congregation's worship experience. Their team of gifted writers and editors are creating worship planning materials to support congregations and its leaders. Visit RCL Worship Resources to see their broad spectrum of resources. They're here to make your worship planning experience creative, easy, and fun. RCLWorshipResources.com. Worship that works for you. Hey, before I get started with the show, I want to thank you for listening. Ordinary Voices is an unordinary pastor's journey to listen to the thoughts of ordinary people and to share those conversations with you. But I want to ask a favor of you. When you're done listening, would you consider taking one of the three following practical actions for me? Subscribe. Subscribe to the show on whatever platform you listen, iTunes, Spotify, SoundCloud. Then recommend it to a friend or, better yet, share it on social media. Third, communicate with me. Let me know what you like, what you don't like, or any suggestions for future shows. Go to the website, OrdinaryVoices.org, to learn more. The goal is to release a new show on or as close to the 15th and 30th of each month. If you're interested, twice a week I send out short reflections. The reflections are turned into short prayer podcasts to help busy people find time to pray in a hectic world. Ordinary Voices is a labor-intensive project and a listener-supported one as well. If you enjoy it, please consider financially supporting it, perhaps 5 or $10 a month, by clicking the Donate button on the website, OrdinaryVoices.org. So remember when you're done listening, subscribe, recommend, communicate. Thank you, and now let's go to the show. There was a natural thing for Lutheran kids on the East Coast to go to Valparaiso. A lot of kids did that. Quite a number, and I didn't understand the connection, but yeah, I mean, they were at uh, they were at some of the whatever college fairs and things like that, and um, I don't think I would have ever found them if they weren't a big family school. It was the only place I applied. Okay, <laughs> and, you know. and I and I knew I was getting in. My mom, like, I don't know. My mom said, so, "Yeah, we talked to the like admissions people. You're in." <laughs> so. No scam thing. You know, no, 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 no. No bribing. <laughs> no, no, no. <laughs> okay. right, my parents didn't have to Photoshop my face. <laughs> yeah, <onto> the, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> hey, Mom, Dad, um, you should have told me I was on the competitive diving team. What a little awkward, that first meeting <laughs> with the coach. <laughs> This is Ordinary Voices, inviting ordinary people into conversations about life and faith. I'm your host, Eric Elkin. This podcast is an unordinary pastor's journey to better understand people and the way they view the world. Now I'm inviting you into the conversation, so together we might listen. Listen for the extraordinary stories dwelling inside every ordinary voice. Guests on the show are not always authorities. They're simply people willing to share with us the authenticity of their own thoughts. I try to provide the guests the freedom to talk, 
and let them determine the direction of the conversation, then reflect upon the things I heard them say. Each show, I ask listeners to listen like a good camp counselor. Good camp counselors allow children to express themselves without judgment. They listen for what the camper is trying to say. People who listen tend to understand each other better, and we live in a world desperate for ears. So let's begin today's show, Restoring the Breach. I first met my guest, Doug Mensing, when I was working at Koinonia, a Lutheran camp and conference center in upstate New York. His family attended, volunteered, and supported the camp. Some, including my guests, even worked at the camp. Fifteen years later, when I was living in Iowa and running a completely different camp, we reconnected. I called a college friend about the possibility of doing an environmental restoration project. My college friend suggested I talk to one Doug Mensing. <laughs> what a small world. A college friend I met in northern Minnesota tells me to speak with a person I met in New York. What are the odds? Since reconnecting, I've kept Doug's phone number. When a suggestion was made by a listener to speak about the environment, he was the person I wanted to interview. So I called him up and discovered he only lived a few blocks away from the church I was serving in Minneapolis. It led to a spontaneous dinner and a re-reconnection. So let's meet our guest. So my name is Doug Mensing. Um, I live here in Minneapolis and uh, came here by way of New Jersey, born and raised there. What brought me out here is uh, Valparaiso University, big family school, and uh, went there for my undergraduate, met a woman from the Twin Cities, and uh, we dated for most of college, brought me out here to the Twin Cities, and wound up getting married and a dog and a house and two kids and then surprised by a divorce <laughs> which rebooted the whole life and that was a real uh, growing experience as you might expect but uh, now several years beyond that quite a number of years beyond that um, happily remarried did you have a desire to do something with the environment, or was it just going, uh... I've always enjoyed the environment and the outdoors and nature. Right. And, um, you know, Koinonia, right? right you know, right. A, lot of, a lot of history with uh, summer camp, um, the Poconos, where my family's got the summer cottage, um, where I was fortunate enough to spend, you know, pretty much a month every summer, two weeks with my family and two weeks with my cousin Mike's family. Okay. And my cousin Mike's a year younger than me, but he's like my brother. Right. So we'd spend like a month running around the woods with right. like very little responsibility or agendas and right. so um just spend a lot of time in the outdoors and between hiking and camping and coining and high adventure trips and boy scouts and all that just spend a lot of time in the outdoors and i really felt strongly about it a real connection to the outdoors um and somewhat of a spiritual connection with the outdoors in terms of how i saw or related i think to God. So yeah, I, I mean, I had been thinking it had been gelling for a while. So it wasn't like, oh shoot, here's the deadline. I've just got to you know stick a pin in something. Right. It was. It was. A, it was. Uh, I felt really good about it. Right. Um, and it 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 did nothing but feel better as like yeah, that was a great call for me and the right call for 
the way I think and operate my strengths, I think, play nicely into that as a, as a kind of a professional career. Actually, in college, Doug worked with his advisor to design his own degree in organic chemistry. This degree did include some conservation and natural resources elements. When he graduated, he had a desire and a degree to help him find work in an environmental field. But it did not sound like he knew exactly what field he wanted to work in. Pun intended. I found listening to Doug's work history really informative. Not only did it reveal the types of jobs available, but how these different jobs approach the environment. I blanketed the Twin Cities with resumes and, you know, it's just having, it was really, it was a pretty tough job market back then as it has been at times since then. Um, but it was pretty tough then. I was having a hard time just landing anything. And then I just had the good fortune of, uh, got an interview and went to a place called Summit Enviro Solutions. And, uh, that was their second name. When I interviewed, they were Summit Environmental Engineering and Consulting Incorporated. Rolls right off your tongue. Yeah, it's really yeah, natural. Kind of catchy. <laughs> yes, it's exactly. Catchy. So a few years later, they went with Summit Enviro Solutions. Worked my tail off for peanuts, as you know, yeah. one does with their first job like that. But working for Summit, it was interesting. I did uh, I did a lot of historical research, uh, looking for potential environmental concerns associated with properties. And the first big project I worked on was when the city of Minneapolis uh, was looking at doing the Hiawatha um, light rail corridor and redevelopment there. And so I was poring over these historical documents and record books and things looking for where there used to be underground storage tanks and where there used to be auto repair shops and things. And oh, yeah. Mapping it all out. Yeah. So it was very interesting. But that, so I got into uh, like site assessments and contamination and underground storage tanks and some emergency spill response and hazardous waste work. And I quickly realized I wanted to get out of the contamination side of the environmental field <laughs> and get over to the natural resources, <laughs> ecology, bugs and bunnies side yeah. of things. The, the softer side. Exactly. The softer <laughs> side, the more pleasant side. And I knew they were hiring a wetland professional who okay. I had the good fortune of doing some work, some work with, um, getting some experience in that, um, and did a little bit more of the wetland work for a while. But then I realized... I really would benefit from graduate school. And at that point, I was married to Michelle. She was going to go to graduate school, but then she's like, wait a minute, we're going to be starting a family soon. She she was kind of itching to start a family. Mm-hmm. So she's like, I'm not going to go get my master's degree and then start having children. That just doesn't make She's like, why don't you go? And I'm like, well, okay, yeah. So I got my master's degree from 95 to 97 in conservation biology at the University of Minnesota. Doug's first job reveals something about our historical approach to the environment. For centuries, we felt if we buried something in the ground, it somehow would take care of itself. Few ever thought about how the buried material would affect drinking water, the land, and ultimately human beings living in that area. Doug learned something about himself in that first job. His job needs to be more than a job. and needs a mission and a bigger purpose. We, the audience, need to learn something as well. His first job provides us a practical lesson why it's important to consider the future generations when building today. At the University of Minnesota, Doug takes a deep dive into conservation biology. I 
I really took a, a deep dive into conservation biology and uh, learning a lot about um, all sorts of things that I'd never been exposed to before. So wildlife surveys and doing really intensive plant surveys, not just naming some species for wet inhalation, but really like naming all of the species in a plot. You say an intensive survey. What does that mean? What is that? Well, like in graduate school, uh, one of the things we were doing in these these plant communities that we were trying to characterize is you do what's called a releve, which is like it typically, at least in the project, the areas that we were in, the plant communities we were in, is like a 10 meter by 10 meter plot. Okay. And you're, you have to identify every single species in that plot, every plant species, every tree, shrub, fern. Oh, wow. Plant, wildflower, grass, weed. Wow. <laughs> so you have to, and then you also characterize it in terms of how much cover each one, how much cover of each plant there is, and also the structure, the height of it, or things like that. Right. So you really characterize uh, a plot of prairie or a plot of forest or a plot of wetland by doing this releve. Okay. And the idea is to do repeat releves over time or in multiple sites to compare those sites or to look at one site over time it can be used in a lot of ways. So you can see the transition of plants or what's growing, what's dying, yep. that kind of thing. Yep, okay. you can see how like invasive plants will over time will increase okay. in their cover. An intensive plant survey was something new to me. I didn't realize the depth to which people study plant activity. For many of us, we can see a field of green wild growth and think it's natural. Yet the truth is, often that green field is full of invasive plants, which are killing the native plants. What we see as natural is not always native, and just because something is green does not mean it's good for the environment. A great example of this is the kudzu plant in Georgia. It is an invasive species which spreads rapidly. It blankets the forest floor and climbs up trees. It kills vegetation necessary for animal diets, and it kills trees. Native plants keep an entire environment vibrant and healthy, thus the need for restoration, which becomes Doug's passion. I'd, I'd figured out in graduate school I really wanted to go more in a restoration direction. Right, right. And, uh, and that was something that I hadn't been exposed to a lot before. I knew you could do things like restore a prairie or something. Right. But the entire concept and field of restoration ecology as a focus and as actual a career um, wasn't really on my radar when I started right. graduate school. But it's, it's kind of relatively new, isn't it? Or is it? Yeah, I mean, there's not a lot of people um, that were doing it years ago, but like um, AES, uh, Applied Ecological Services, who I work for, that got started back in the 70s by oh. S- Steve Affelbaum in the Chicago region, which was kind of one of the birthplaces, arguably the place where restoration ecology really started. There were some researchers and things that started kind of putting pieces together and thinking about things this way. In Minnesota, um, a lot of folks know Ron Bowen from Prayer Restorations Incorporated, oh, yeah. which is a company similar to AES in some regards. It's also got some differences, but Ron Bowen started PRI about the same time. Okay. And so there was, there, there has been around for a while, but certainly the, the true science of it is still quite young, and there's a lot of research going on. So there's a lot that's known, and it obviously builds on a lot of other fields. I mean, restoration ecology, it builds on, you know, the, the, the base knowledge that we have of, you know, vegetation, wildlife, soils, groundwater, surface water, all these interactions and things, and all those sciences have advanced over time. Concurrently, 
restoration ecology has also been advancing. And then it's gotten to the point where they rest, there's a recognition that we really need to be restoring these things <laughs> right. because we've messed so many of them up so dramatically right. that um, it is becoming much more recognized as a, a standalone field and something that is demanded or valued in lots of projects. Every plot of land is designed to function a certain way. You can build anywhere, and humans have. But the land will still want to work like it was designed to work. When Doug talks about restorative biology, I think about Gary, Indiana. The factories in Gary, Indiana were built on wetlands. As a child, driving through Gary was the sick highlight of our summer trips. In the 70s, the water in Gary was vile, the air repugnant, and the landscape dismal. The wetlands did not contain the toxic waste. It helped spread it into other areas. Today, the water is no longer filled with abandoned cars, but migratory birds. The film that covered the lakes is gone, and people actually use it for recreational purposes. It's still going to take a long time to completely restore this area, but it's headed in the right direction. Gary, Indiana didn't change the commerce, but how the commerce interacted with the natural world and everybody is the better for it. Doug describes his next job and another approach to ecological engineering. Summit was a smaller engineering firm with a small natural resources group. Okay. EarthTech was a ginormous engineering firm that had a, a, a larger natural resource group, but I was in a small local one here in the Minnesota office. Okay. So Leslie and I worked on a number of restoration projects and things like that. What kind of a project would you do? What, what is a project that would... Um, a lot of those projects, since it was a large engineering firm, is you've got you know some large engineering project, a big road project or a big development project or whatever, and then they would tap the natural resource folks, oh, shoot. There's a, we had to do a wetland delineation. Can yeah. you do that? Yes, yeah. we can do that. So we go out there and we show them where the wetlands are. So they try to avoid that or not. Okay. And if they don't avoid it, then they have to mitigate. They have okay. to replace the wetland. You know, if they impact the wetland, they have to replace some of the wetland with credits. And it's very complicated. But, right. but then they're like, oh, you know, so if we have to mitigate it on site, they're like, oh, we got this little corner of the site. Can you build us a wetland down there? And it's like, yeah, it's not really where a wetland belongs. But okay. we can do it. Really, in that field, what I'm hearing is that there were bigger construction projects, and you were trying to um, lessen the impact yeah. of that environment, which is not restoration. Often that, yeah, I mean, you can sometimes you're doing restoration in small pieces, but it's kind of an afterthought. Right. And usually the projects are, you know, driven by the engineering. Right. And again, it's kind of an afterthought. We want to build here. Yeah. Tell us how we can do that. Yeah. Yeah. Get us the permit. And figure out how to do the okay. mitigation, whether it's on-site or off-site, or you buy bank credits or whatever. But, you know, walk us through the project, fill out the forms. Uh, sometimes, again, we get, we'd be able to do some design work and do some interesting things. Um, but, uh, but, yeah, it was driven by the engineering. A second possible approach to ecological engineering is one used by Applied Ecological Systems, or AES. Doug highlights the difference by describing a project AES conducted in Kansas City. Uh, 
we did one for the Kansas City metro area. It was like nine counties on both sides of the river there. What 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 can it, you put together an ecology plan for them? Or? Yeah, yeah. So uh, for that project, we used um, high resolution uh, satellite imagery. Okay. And uh, through a very complicated process, uh, d- developed a uh, land cover mapping system. But we basically did an, uh, a natural resources inventory to understand what these counties had in terms of their natural resources, which you can tell a lot from aerial photography and satellite imagery, especially if you can characterize it in terms of land cover. Because okay. forests do some things really well, grasslands do some things really well, like you were talking about in terms of infiltrating water and things like that, those right. natural covers. Whereas areas that are impervious surfaces, hard surfaces, roads, buildings, urban areas, those don't function so well in terms of water quality. They don't function so well in terms of providing what we call ecosystem services. So these are things that the natural environment provides that we benefit from and we essentially don't pay anything for it. Okay. So if you take care of a natural area, it's providing lots of good things, you know, clean water, fresh air. Um, thermal regulation, floodplain storage, if there's floodplains in there. So these natural areas, healthy, intact natural areas, provide these ecosystem services. And you can look at a land cover type, and you can get a sense as to how the ecosystem services are being provided there, Okay. the type of them and how well they're performed. And then we also did some projections based on how these communities might want to grow, so like looking at a future land use plan. Mm-hmm. And so you can do that same analysis using computer modeling and geographic information systems and things to say, this is what you have today. This is kind of how it's functioning, how the ecosystem services are working here. And this is what you're planning on being in 30 years okay. in terms of developing this field and this and that. And this is what your ecosystem services would be like in the future. And not surprisingly, development typically is going to reduce your ecosystem services. You get more housing. You might get more, you know, food production if if you take a natural field and put it into crops. So you get other benefits from it. But in terms of the ecosystem services, you're typically going to go down through development and land alteration. That way, decision makers can have their eyes at least wide open. They can recognize, okay... You know, you can walk them through this process and they can see and they might still make the decision to do that development or they might say, oh, no, you know what? Maybe we, we want to do a little less development in this area here because that ties into this natural area over here. Okay. And so you can use it for conservation planning. You can use it to conserve higher quality natural areas, larger blocks. You can provide connectivity between natural areas, which is beneficial for the plants and the wildlife. And you can focus on areas for stormwater management and flood water retention. So you're going to have a development that's less prone to flooding. So it has all sorts of applications. Doug uses the term ecosystem services. This phrase was popularized in the 2000s to describe the benefits humans gain from a properly functioning natural environment. An earlier Ordinary Voices interview with Hans, an Iowa farmer, provided an excellent example of what Doug is describing. Hans talked about how tilling farmland, a human activity, increased soil erosion and contributed silt to the Mississippi River. He and his father stopped tilling and created buffer zones around the fields to allow the natural environment to function as it should. The ecosystem services allowed them to retain a quality of soil and decrease the effects of silt in communities on the lower parts of the Mississippi River. Thinking about how one uses the land can have benefits to the larger community. 
is that well received by the um, people? It can be. I mean, you know, some people don't like hearing the facts, <laughs> right? You know, it's hard. I feel that way in my job. Because of the accountant. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so Plant and internal damnation. People just don't really want to, you know, right? And just go weird it out. I guess. Yeah, no, I, I've certainly been uh, verbally assaulted at public meetings where people say, what about the people? You, all you care about is the trees and the right. rabbits and the bunnies. Right. No, no, that's not quite right you know so you know there's definitely folks out there that um don't see the value in uh conservation and the value of natural areas um but there's a surprising amount of reception and um obviously there's um there's been a disconnection in our society from nature right so that's been written about and talked about a lot um and i think it's a huge issue for the younger generation but that said you know there's there's a lot of people that have grown to realize maybe they didn't know think about it before but they've seen the changes and they don't like what they see in the, in the natural world right and they're recognizing that there's real value in this and i think that's a big i think testament to the the work that you know aes does that i do this whole concept of restoration ecology and valuing that i mean people pay a lot of money for aes to be on project teams to design projects most of our clients really value what we do and appreciate that and want that and, and want to bring that into their projects because they recognize the value that we bring. You are not telling them not to build and develop. It's just kind of giving you this would be a beneficial place, right. this would be a less beneficial place. You're not having, um, mm-hmm. you're not building on something that's right um, could cause a lot of damage yeah. down the road. Yeah, like, you know, if, if you can put a house, you know, location A or location B, and location A has got some rare plants or it's got, you know, it's, it's in the floodplain or it's near a floodplain or something mm-hmm. like that. You know, there's, there's reasons to differentiate between those areas. And so, you know, clients don't always take our recommendations. Yeah. Um, sometimes we even earnestly really push them to take our recommendations. Right, yeah. But, they, you know, ultimately they're a client and if they want to do something differently, you know, sometimes regulators force them to kind of do it a certain way. Right. But we, we at least try to influence decisions and we're always trying to filter which projects we even take on we sometimes have said no to projects because we don't work with that client or we don't think that we're going to be valued in that team and we're not going to we're not going to pursue that that we want to get involved in projects where we think our involvement is going to you know provide the best end result and hopefully a net improvement to the ecology and the functioning of the landscape to see i've had developers say wow doug i never thought about things like this before Right. And that's really cool to hear that and that you know that you've set a seed in their mind that hopefully is helping them to see the natural world differently and how they do their developments differently. Often in the media, care for the environment is divided along liberal and conservative lines. I would caution listeners from making the same assumption. Doug is very much liberal his views, comments, and approach to the environment are very consistent with Hans, a conservative Iowa farmer from an earlier interview. Doug also contradicts another stereotype, that is, scientists are not people of faith. You've connected your faith to to your environmental passion. 
Yeah, yeah, I'd say I have, and I, I was putting together a um, just PowerPoint. That's how consultants think is PowerPoint. Okay. Yeah, yeah, right, right. But I was putting together a PowerPoint for uh, one of our adult forums at St. John's years ago, and it was really, I was aware of it before, but it became really clear when I was trying to put my thoughts together into kind of like somewhat of a hopefully cohesive presentation for a group that was going to be, you know, whatever, 20, 30-minute presentation about this idea of, you know, living your faith, living sustainably on the earth, you know, and and that was tying in, again, obviously my professional career and the scientist in me, but it also was bringing in um, personal choices that I've made to live, you know, with a lower carbon footprint and more sustainably and more gently, you know. not not a strict vegetarian or a vegan, but you know I eat very very little meat. You know just to eat low on the the food chain. Follow a lot of practices just at home. You know whether it's composting and recycling and energy efficient bulbs and all those all those little things that are part of my life. Um, trying to use a bicycle and not drive everywhere and things like that, or walk or run or whatever. You know I read a number of influential books at that same time too. You know Last Child in the Woods that talks mm-hmm. about this nature deficit disorder of, of our children today. I'd read uh, The Omnivore's Dilemma. So there was all these things coming together in this talk that I was giving, and it was really neat because it was like personal decisions and professional things and where my passions were with my children and also about how that just ties in with my faith and this whole idea of creation care and stewardship of the earth, um, not dominion over. Faith and the environment are not historical partners. Koinonia, the camp where Doug and I first met, was groundbreaking in this area. Working with Dr. John Kirk of the New Jersey School of Conservation in the 70s, Koinonia developed the Creation Learning Center, a hands-on environmental education curriculum for parochial schools in the greater New York City area. Dr. Kirk invited the director of the camp, Pastor Bob Nervig, to speak at the UN to a group of the world's leading environmentalists about faith and the environment. The environmentalist walked out as soon as he took the stage, mostly in protest for the church's historical poor track record of protecting the environment, of interpreting dominion as control instead of partnership. I share this because too often we cut off conversations before we've had a chance to find common ground. We see those not like us as opponents instead of possible partnerships and future advocates for mutual interests. Some people are like, how can you be a scientist who wants to see proof and, you know, have a theory that you can test and all that and have faith? You know, I think for a lot of people, they don't see that. It just, I, I don't know, I can go to sleep every night. It doesn't, <laughs> it doesn't, doesn't, doesn't upset me. Again, maybe I'm naive. <laughs> yeah. Maybe you think you understand what sustainability That's is. That's right. You don't really know what it is. <laughs> I just don't see them as being mutually exclusive or creating lots of angst in my mind or my life. I so you, you know love your neighbor, mm-hmm. and that we that's something you embrace in a faith too, right? Yeah. But uh, that's 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 loving creation. Yeah, we um, that's part of what we. Uh, I've been having some conversations with our. We have a new rector, 
she and others in our church have been bringing forth the words of um, Michael Curry. He's the bishop, okay. I think, of the National um, the National Episcopal Church. And he talks about the beloved community, becoming the beloved community, which I'm just recently kind of learning about that, but it's a term that was, uh, I think it's been around for a while. Dr. Martin Luther King brought it up um, and spoke to it. Um, but this idea of the beloved community, um, including all people everywhere, all races, all beliefs, etc., but also the community, I think, of the, the larger natural world, right. and thinking about that and that relationship. Um, and, you know, there's, there's a number of kind of tenets and things that go into this philosophy of the beloved community and what does that mean, how do we live into that, etc. But one of them is talking about, um, you know, like repairing the breach between us as people, between races, between cultures, between faiths, and between us and the breach between us and the natural world, too. Would that be kind of your approach? Yeah. I mean, my faith has really been, it's been evolving. You know, it's been interesting to kind of look back at what I, where I came from. And, you know, I grew up in a very strong Lutheran family, as you know. Um, you know, lots of time at church singing in choir and confirmation class and, you know, just assumptions about how one would live and such. Um, but, you know, that has stuck in me as a person, and I'm ever thankful for it. There's some things that I'm, cl- I'm clear enough on, and I'm clear enough on my faith and what that, what, how, that defi- how I define that is, is I, I'd have a hard time putting that into words. Right. Um, but nature's a big part of that, I think, or that's, again, how I see or relate to some of that. Right. And so I see value, you know, even if there isn't a God or a faith, I see value in the natural world for people and benefits that people can get by recognizing it, recognizing its amazingness and its diversity. And so regardless of if they see any creator behind all of that, I think there's value in that and certainly recognizing how we can live as a part of nature and not separate from nature. So I just think there's a lot of opportunities for people to see that, to, to appreciate that relationship and appreciate that, um, that there needs to be a respect and a living, hopefully, in harmony with the natural world. There's a part of me also that believes that the world has a way of correcting itself. Oh, yeah. That has very damaging impact on human life regardless oh, of yeah. your economic value. <laughs> yes. Oh yeah. Yeah. No, I, I, yeah, that's it. Yeah. Um, yeah, certainly the, you know, people are like, the world isn't going to end because of climate change. Right. Human species might end <laughs> yeah, right. or we're going to be living like, you know, in, right. in misery, right. you know, in like we like living in a living hell or something like yeah. that. But you know, the world's not going to die. Things are going to adapt, things will become extinct, new things will come in. What are those, the really big things that worry you? Well, again, you know, I've, I've, I've worked with people, I've gone to things, uh, you know, groups and discussed climate change. There's a thing called climate conversations that Minnesota do that, and that's like, how do you, how do you interact with people and talk about these tough topics? Sometimes that people are feeling, you know, are very loaded, you know, very loaded words or just a subject that where a wall's going to, you know, they hear climate change or global warming, wall's going to go up, you're not going to have a conversation with them. Um, I've known people that, you know, they literally are like losing sleep. You know, I've talked to people that are just talking about not having children and bearing children into this world because they're afraid of what their children would have, uh, you know, what they would be born into. I don't stay up at night. Again, Maybe I'm naive, but it doesn't keep me up all the time at night. I feel like, especially when I start looking at some of the science that I feel very strongly and think is very, very reliable science, 
Um, I think things are going to get really bad and really nasty. And again, it's going to be those folks that are poorest, that are living in you know you know foreign countries, whether it's Haiti or in you know lowland areas of third world countries or whatever. Um, that are just going to be completely displaced and all the, you know, the climate refugees and things. And again, some of that stuff is already going on now. You could argue some of that stuff has been going on in some of the areas experiencing desertification and things like that in Africa and elsewhere. Some of those areas have been experiencing that, I think, for decades. Mm -hmm. Um, But it's becoming more and more apparent that, you know, the global weirding that's going on, it's warming in some places, it's wetter in some places, it's drier in some places. All that's having effects that that, that are going to, really impact a lot of people. And that's why we see, um, and we talk about this a lot with Earth Matters, you know, this issue of climate justice or whatever, it really is a social justice issue. You know, some people don't see those dots kind of connecting. They think of it kind of being a science thing or whatever, but there's a real social justice component to it. And so that's something that, again, I feel tremendously privileged and quite frankly safe and distanced to a certain extent from a lot of that. And in my lifetime, I'm probably not going to feel the brunt of it. I think, I think people already are feeling the brunt, the brunt of it, and it's just going to get worse every year. People can debate if Hurricane Katrina was a result of climate change, or what Doug calls global weirding. What was clear, the impact of that natural disaster had the greatest impact on the most vulnerable in society. People with financial means could flee the area before the destruction, even after the financially viable had the ability to relocate and rebuild. It was the physically and economically compromised people who were worst hit by this disaster. Doug is accurate in calling environmental change a social justice issue. So I asked Doug, what would you do about this? I should note, in a segment not included, Doug and I talked about the word sustainable. It is one of my favorite words, but Doug informed me that people don't understand what it means. Matter of fact, he's been told by leadership within AES not to use it. They prefer the word resilient instead. If you came to our church and said, hey, listen, we want you guys to think in this community of faith mm-hmm. about living in harmony or living in a sustainable way. Yeah. And then explain the word sustainable. That's right. Move on. <laughs> you know, um, I'm, I'm going to rest with that one for a long time. i got to tell you, I'm just going to be going, so I can't know it's sustainable. <laughs> um, what would be the things that you would say? Well, i got to tell you something. Yeah. Red meat's off the table. <laughs> not giving it up. Well, I'm going to have to edit that part out of the show. Cause my, my brother-in-law raises cattle in western North Dakota. And, uh, uh, Peg will do anything to save the planet. But yeah, <laughs> anything meat, but. Red meat's but you know. <laughs> I'm sorry. No, that's okay. Um, well, so I, I think a useful, what comes to mind is there's a useful framework that actually a gentleman, John Ackerman, who was at St. John's years ago, he's since passed away. I think he was a, I think he was a Presbyterian minister. Um, he worked with Minnesota Interfaith Power and Light here in Minnesota, the nonprofit, and came up with kind of uh, an approach. And I'm not sure it's, I'm not sure if it was adapted from somewhere else, but the Minnesota Interfaith Power and Light calls it the three-legged stool. And so they talk about ways that we can approach um, creation, care, whatever you want to call it, sustainability, low-impact living, low-carbon footprint. The three-legged stool, um, 
entails practical actions. And this is kind of how Earth Matters organizes ourselves or thinks about things that we can offer and things that we can engage with. And they're not mutually exclusive. But practical actions, spiritual practice, Hmm. and systemic change. Okay. So practical actions, changing out light bulbs to LEDs, doing practical things, composting, recycle, you know, reduce first, then you know, reduce first, then reuse, and then as a last resort, recycle, and okay. try to eliminate trash. But thinking about those three R's, but really trying to first reduce consumption, then reuse it, then recycle it, because you lose energy in recycling, of course, trash. Right. Um, composting things. So practical actions. Um, spiritual practices is basically taking your thoughts about the world, about the earth, about nature, and reflecting on that. Um, we've used that in Earth Matters as kind of a source to pray for the earth, to pray for people working for the benefit of the earth, um, to mourn for the earth. Okay. Um, so that's some of the spiritual kind of practice pieces. And then systemic change is not screwing in a high-efficiency light bulb, but actually going on a march to protest, you know, tar sands pipelines or something like that, or, you know, um, signing a petition for creating systemic change, large-scale systemic change. Mm -hmm. So I think that's a useful framework, and one of the reasons that I really like it is because usually... You know, we're all different personalities and different people. I'm a scientist, so, you know, I kind of tend to naturally gravitate towards the practical actions. But I've also forced myself to kind of go into that realm of exploring more of my spiritual practices and getting involved in more systemic change things, which, you know, ultimately that's where big stuff's got to happen. And, you know, we can all do our little piece quickly and easily at home and small scale. But the systemic change, you know, the world needs systemic change big time now, if not mm-hmm. yesterday. But some, some people are just not going to go there, right? Mm-hmm. So to give them other pieces that they might feel comfortable with and then encourage them maybe to go out of their comfort zone. So I think that's a useful framework to think about what people can do. And that's another piece that um, kind of came to my I don't know, it somehow came to my awareness years ago in doing this work at St. John's. This concept that people think about, you know, giving up red meat or something like that, um, that they're going to have to sacrifice. I honestly believe that there's some tremendous opportunity to not make it. It's not a sacrifice. It might be giving something up or changing a habit. But I think the benefits that you can get back from that more than outweigh what you might be losing right. in the taste of a, a, a meal or, or, you know, a nice nice burger or something like oh. that. I, I just think uh, that's, that's off the table. Oh, that's on, right. That's non-negotiable. But this issue that I think people, again, they, they feel like, oh, you know, Doug wants us all to live like cavemen and women, right. you know, and give it all up. Give up your car, give up your, your polyester clothing, give up all these things. And I'm saying, no, I don't think I'm, I haven't done that, but I, I feel like I've done a lot of small changes and I feel like through those, through those things, you can be a bit more intentional Mm -hmm. about how you live and you can appreciate the things that you do have and you may not miss the things that you give up as much. And, And I, and I think the opportunity for getting closer to the earth and closer to nature. Yeah. They talk about children having, you know, this nature deficit disorder, but 
heck of a lot of adults I know have it. I'm not really sure how I feel about Doug not giving up his polyester clothing, but that will be a private conversation. What I invite you to do is localize the three-legged stool, practical actions, spiritual practice, and systematic change into your own life. What would that look like for you? Listening to Doug, I find myself thinking about my brother-in-law and his family in North Dakota. How would they receive this information? On one hand, they are polar opposites of Doug, and his language might put them off. But on the other hand, they are doing many of the things he suggests. The last time I visited my conservative cattle rancher family, they showed me a field where the cattle graze. They decided to abandon tilling to conserve soil. They plant bean pods and eggplants into this field. The cattle graze on the natural nutrients of the bean pods and the eggplants. What is not eaten dies and renews the health of the soil. That is a financially wise and environmentally friendly practice. It is a practical action. My brother-in-law and his family, I doubt, would ever pray to mourn the earth, as Doug referenced. However, I can hear in their words a deep spiritual connection with the land and a concern for it in their way of life. They can produce an anxiety about the future, which can take the form of a biblical lament. They would just not say it that way. Their life on the land is a spiritual practice. Systematic change is more difficult. It is where politics get involved. Doug references Tarzan's pipeline, and the strong emotion it produces on both sides makes me tense up. However, the one common thread I hear in Doug and my family is, what will the land be for the future generations? Listening to Doug, the words of Micah 6.8 kept coming to mind. He has told you, O mortal, what is good, and what does the Lord require of you but to do justice, and to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God. What does the Lord require of you? You are to do justice and work for systematic change. You are to consider the beloved community by loving kindness in a way which spans rural and urban demographics, red and blue states, social and racial complexities. We are to see ourselves as one community of people and to see loving our neighbor as a spiritual practice. In a world full of technological advancement, it is easy to be seduced into the wonder of human dominion. Yet so often, human wisdom is brought to its knees by the natural world. We would do well to remember to walk in humility and in harmony with the earth, appreciating its beauty, its resiliency, and its necessity for us all to have life and have it abundantly. We walk the walk of humility by taking practical actions to restore, as Doug referenced, the breach, the breach between creature, creation, and its creator. That's our show. I want to thank Doug for sharing, and I want to thank you for listening. I encourage you to explore what practical action, spiritual practice, and systematic change looks like in your life.
Join me next time when I talk to a public relations director for a Colorado school district about how their district handled a viable threat to the safety of its children and staff. Until then, check out the website, ordinaryvoices.org, to follow along. And remember my three practical actions, subscribe, recommend, communicate. This is a listener-supported show. If you enjoy it, please consider financially supporting it by clicking the donate button on the website, ordinaryvoices.org. I also encourage you to check out rclworshipresources.com, where worship planning is made fun and easy. On behalf of all Ordinary Voices, thanks for listening, and I look forward to our next conversation. Und trank und trank, ja.